Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Melissa Studdard, and this is Teferit Talks, the Blog Talk Radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. In addition to listening today, we'd love for you to join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com. That's www.tiferetjournal.com, where you can interact with other members, read their writings, post your own writings, and subscribe to the journal. We'd like to let you know as well that our Blog Talk chat room is currently open if you would like to chat with other listeners or suggest questions. Our interview tonight is with Joseph Novakovic. Novakovic is a professor at Concordia University in Montreal and holds a Master of Divinity from Yale University. He is the author of numerous works, including the novel April Fool's Day, three short story collections, Yolk, Salvation and Other Disasters, and Infidelity, Stories of War and Lust, as well as two collections of narrative essays, Apricots from Chernobyl and Plum Brandy, and also the writing textbooks, writing fiction step-by-step, and Fiction Writers Workshop. Frequently anthologized, Novakovich is the recipient of many prestigious writing awards, such as the Whiting Writers Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, two fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts, an award from the Ingram Merrill Foundation, and an American Book Award. Despite his overwhelming success as a writer, he's known among colleagues, other writers, and students for his kindness and modesty. Hi, Joseph. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me here, Melissa. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you here and get to talk to you tonight. So um, I wanted to see if you'd like to start by reading a piece of fiction. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, so I'll, I'll read a, a very short story entitled Ice. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, this is how it goes. A while right. back in the Croatian town Mizograd, Ivan, who was 10, and Tom, or 8, went out into the streets in a snowstorm because they had heard that Coca-Cola had arrived. The rumor had spread around Mizograd in whispers, shouts, and the veracity of the news was disputed at the street corners near bullet-riddled buildings with peeling mortar. Photographs of glistening mouths with dazzling white teeth had heralded Coca-Cola as tremendously refreshing. Forget apple cider, plum cider, apple juice. Humans had made a drink that God should like to drink. Jeff K. had drunk nothing but Coca-Cola. In front of Hotel Flavia stood a white truck loaded with Croatian's bottles in the form of hand grenades. Crowds gathered and gazed at the precious reddish darkness resembling the darkness of breathless Venus blood. The boys crawled on their knees through melting snow between the legs of adults. Like two dogs off the leash, they sniffed quickly. Even had heard Coca-Cola was coming, but he did not believe it. He had waited for Christ for years and years, and Christ was not on the clouds yet. But the Coca-Cola was there in the snow. They're going to start selling it next week, said a voice. First, they need to see whether it's real. What does it taste like? Tomo whispered into Ivan's ear, and Ivan said, can't tell you right now. Why not? It's a state secret. 
But everybody's going to know how it tastes. It will be sold next week. That's doubtful, said Ivan. The drink is reserved for the mayor and his guests. Maybe we'll even see Tito in our town. Late that night, the boys tiptoed to the hotel yard and started, stared at the truck through the cracks between the planks of wood and the fence. With trepidation, they crawled beneath the fence, grabbed a box of Coca-Cola and rushed home. Where's the drink right now? Thomas said. No, not yet. You're supposed to drink it with ice. Without ice, it does not work. Let's drink right now, Thomas said. No, not yet. Sorry, you're supposed to drink uh, with ice. I'm scrolling on the computer. Without ice, it doesn't work. But it's cold enough. No, it has to be icy. You leave them uh, in the snow overnight. But why not uh, pour it into a cup and put some icicles into the Coca-Cola? See, there is enough ice. Tomo pointed to the roof of the house. Icicles hung like straight, transparent mammoth teeth. Tomo cracked one uh, from the roof, broke it into pieces, and chewed them. Don't do that. Your teeth will crack, said Ivan. Please, let me drink Coca-Cola. I have the ice. No, the ice has to come out of Coca-Cola. You mustn't mix outside the ice with it. But why not? If you do, it won't be real. There will be plain water in it. The bottles were lined up in the snow. Ivan and Tomo watched the bottles shed a flashlight over them as if over war prisoners, imprisoned little Americans whose caps soon would be twisted off and brains drunk. They shivered, partly from the cold, partly from the thrill, the cosmopolitan thrill. You need not go to America to feel like an American. Just drink Coke with ice, the Eucharist with the blood and the flesh, the wine and the wafer of the United States of America, the land that touches the moon. After midnight, when Ivan seemed asleep, Tom stole out of the room and went barefoot into the snow. But Ivan heard him and caught him just as he was about to touch a bottle. Ivan tied him to his bed, saw that Tom was now like a dog on the leash. And like a sad dog, Tom squealed and he fell asleep. In the morning, Ivan untied him and they rushed off. The bottles had burst, and icy, light, red Coca-Cola, like fresh arterial blood in the shape of the bottles, stood there, slanted. The boys separated the bits of glass from the Coke. Tom moaned. Shut up, Ivan said. Why, how are we going to drink it now? It's all ice. Tom could not wait. He put the Coke ice into a pot and was about to place the pot on the stove. Don't do that. If the Coca-Cola melts too fast, it will lose its flavor. Several hours later, with tears of impatience in his eyes, finally allowed to drink, Tomo gulped liquid Coke and chewed ice at the same time with fear, as if he would be transubstantiated at the end of the cup. At first, Tomo felt nothing except the icy anesthesia in his lips and tongue. But as the contracting tart taste reached him, he spat it all out on the floor. Why, this is cough medicine. Ivan chewed slowly and gulped, his eyes closed, and his face twisted into an expression of beatitude, as if the inner certainty of salvation sweetly permeated his cheeks and eyelids. And then he coughed, shuddering. And he coughed so much that a doctor was called in. 
Yeah, said the doctor. The boys got it again. And that winter even had a more acute bronchitis than any year hitherto. He stayed in bed for two weeks, reading, and Thomas served him a glass of Coca-Cola every six hours. Okay, <laughs> so that's that is, story. That is so rich. <laughs> um, you know, it makes me think of your statement that in fiction you can make something ordinary, extraordinary by defamiliarizing it. Um, and obviously I think the merits of the defamiliarization process are really clear from hearing you read this. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how you discovered the process of defamiliarization and what some of the ways are to accomplish it? Well, it was very simple. I emigrated from uh, Yugoslavia, uh, actually Croatia, but then it was one country, Yugoslavia, and uh, Many things that were totally banal for me then, and that struck me as very boring, uh, once I uh, was in the States and uh, was nostalgic, uh, suddenly appeared wonderful to me. So uh, through the distance of uh, 4,000 miles and uh, another language, because, you know, by that time I was educated in English and uh, was writing in English, uh, my hometown uh, suddenly struck me as, uh, as uh, very interesting, you know, the the... The old women uh, in uh, the next yard to mine who were uh, rabid Catholics uh, who were doing rosaries, uh, walking around uh, with their purple fingers uh, uh, for hours, uh, who seemed uh, horrifying to me and very boring, uh, suddenly seemed um, beautiful and uh, exotic, and I wanted to remember them. And uh, so almost everything about the town that uh, was too immediate to me when I was there from a distance, uh, it, it suddenly appeared in a new light and, uh, and quite interesting. Uh, you know, uh, when I was in Cincinnati in Walmart parking lots and so on, suddenly I missed all that. So you think that um, living in different places and also writing in different languages definitely aided that process for you? Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, I, I concluded it was almost a technique. And uh, looking at the biographies of many writers, you see uh, that they, they had to leave. We had the whole expat phenomenon, Hemingway right. and uh, the crew had to go to Paris to find Illinois exciting, you know, but Illinois is, is always as exciting as it is, you know. So, uh, but uh, uh, it's uh, it's kind of uh, miraculous how just with little shifts uh, you can see more than you can see otherwise. Uh, so if something yeah. is uh, very, very uh, strange to you, you can uh, uh, pretend it's not and write in the first person. Uh, you can write about uh, someone completely different from you, write in the first person point of view, imagine you're that person. Well, like uh, Dostoevsky, who was not uh, a murderer, wrote the story about a murderer, uh, uh, common punishment, and uh, he got into the mind of Raskolnikov. Okay, it was not in the first person point of view, but it was so intimately in, in the head of Raskolnikov. Uh, we follow all his thoughts and his nervousness and uh, fevers and... Uh, and suddenly we are with him, and uh, we should not be sympathetic, but we are, because we are in that head. And uh, uh, something that uh, is uh, alien to you, if you really get close to it, uh, you may understand it. And uh, Well, look at uh, 
how the microscope works. Uh, spittle is something that uh, is not very appealing, but you put it under a microscope and uh, suddenly you have a whole heaven uh, there, you know? It's, uh, uh, yes, I think that's a great analogy, too, because that's, that's exactly what the story Ice does for me. I, I mean, I read it and I was thinking of Coca-Cola in a totally different way, obviously, than, than I ever have before. And it's just, um, you know, you write with such presence. Um, you, you pay such close and careful attention to um, the details. And um, I'm just wondering, what do you have a practice in your life? Do you meditate? Is there something you do to keep yourself in that kind of awareness and presence that allows you to observe things in that way to be able to write about them like that? Mm. You know, I don't meditate now. I went through various phases. Uh, I, I used to be very pious and religious, uh, and I used to pray every day, uh, spend quite a lot of time doing it. Uh, and, uh, well, uh, uh, I, I don't do it now, and uh, maybe I'll do it again. Uh, uh, but uh, that suddenly has taught me how to... Well, in, in prayer, basically... Uh, uh, you you thank for the obvious. You pause to thank for the meal. You know uh, we assume we should have food to eat every day, but uh, you know in prayer we still thank uh, for uh, same grace for the food that we have, and that reminds us that there are times when uh, there are no meals to be eaten, when people are starving, and uh, uh, a prayer prayer is that kind of uh, concentration on the obvious. Uh, and even going to church was a concentration on, on the obvious. Many sermons were reiterating the obvious, and, and I was exasperated by that. But uh, it was actually uh, kind of a good uh, exercise in, in patience. And, uh, you know, like, um, we all know what is good for us, uh, but uh, we don't we don't uh, necessarily do it. And uh, just being told uh, to uh, breathe slowly, to run around the block, all these basic things—they—they uh, they may sound very boring, but uh, they're good to to reiterate and to do. And uh, so I think that the, going through years and years of uh, religious um, training and practice, and uh, maybe communism too, um, has uh, taught me to really. Uh, slow down and do things uh, in, in the moment. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you know the Soviet patience. I always I, I joke about the Soviet patience. You can wait in line for 10 hours to get something. And now we can't wait for 10 seconds to get online, you know. So we have changed. <laughs> but uh, it's still good to remember the old patience. And I think uh, that still helps me. Yes. Yes. Well, I wanted to ask you a question also about, um, I know that you write both nonfiction and fiction, and um, I'm wondering how they inform each other for you, and if you have a preference, um, you know, do you know when you start realizing that you want to write a story that this is going to fit into the fiction vessel or the nonfiction vessel? I don't always know, you know, uh there, there were some stories in which I started from uh, what was clearly non-fiction material, and uh, I uh, realized I was not uh, uh, sticking to the details as I knew them, but I was altering them and uh, making them up. And I said, okay, so I'm writing fiction. And, um, 
I'll take off from there. And basically, to my mind, uh, we're always dealing with uh, dealing with the same reality, and uh, so uh, uh, fiction, uh, uh, as the saying goes, is the the lies that tell the truth. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, you cannot tell the truth uh, straightforwardly in in an enlightening way. That's why we have parables. Uh, in uh, Jesus was telling uh, stories in parables, or well, the truth in parables. Uh, and those are really stories, uh, fiction, but uh, they show you something in the new light uh, that is somehow more immediate and, and uh, uh, more arresting than uh, telling the outright uh, truth uh, in, in a painstaking, uh, detailed way. So uh, fiction is sometimes a shortcut uh, to the truth, uh, the lies of the shortcuts to the truth. Uh, which uh, may be bizarre, but, well, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of how I have to choose between uh, fiction and non-fiction. Uh, I visited Croatia uh, at the end of the war, uh, Vinkovci, which was uh, on the borderlands between Serbia and Croatia, and uh, my brother-in-law was there, the only man left on the block. The block was mostly burnt out. He had uh, forwards of holes in its foundation, and shrapnel all over the walls, uh, in the apartment, and so I wanted to tell, to ask him what it was like to go through the war, and why didn't he move? Uh, well, I asked him that, but he did not answer. He instead uh, uh, was uh, opening the Bible, uh, reading various verses to me, and uh, I must say, in the end, I was kind of disgusted because I thought uh, he was hiding behind uh, the scriptures. He was not telling me the truth in a way. Uh, in some way he was, but for me that was not a story. Uh, and I came there as a journalist and I wanted to write about him. And uh, I did not understand what he went through when he was in the war, you know. And uh, when he was under siege and when he was trying to sleep and there were bombs there. Uh, there were more, maybe there were no bombs many nights. Most nights there were none. Uh, but still there was the threat. And... Um, so, uh, in order to understand uh, what he went through, I wrote a story, uh, imagining uh, what it was like, and uh, having him as a beekeeper, which he was, and worrying about his bees and about his wife and children, and uh, and I found out that in fiction, in a way, I could uh, get uh, to, maybe not necessarily his experience, but uh, the experience of being in a, a horrible situation like that, and uh, keeping up the faith. Uh, apparently, he kept, well, a, I, to my mind, too much faith. But so I, I couldn't put it in perspective. So I wrote fiction about it. That's that's so interesting. And I I remember reading, um, I think it was an interview with you where you said that um, you had written in the end of April Fool's Day, uh, which is such an amazing novel about. The death of someone, and that someone had actually come up to you on the street who had had a near-death experience, and said, "How do you know what that was like to die?" Because the way you described it in the novel is exactly what it was like for me in my near-death experience. And um, and you said, "Well, I don't. I, I made it up, <laughs> right?" Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I, I imagine what it would be like to be in the transitional state uh, between life and death, and and uh, a man who. Um, jumped into a river thinking it was deep uh, and it was shallow. He broke his neck and there he was 
in the water, um, he thought he was dead, and, and clinically he was dead, and when he was uh, resuscitated and pulled out, and, and uh, eventually he recovered, but uh, he didn't recover the control over his body, and uh, so uh, he, he said that it was the closest experience of uh, what he went through, uh, what he found in my novel, that he never saw it in, in any other account that it was so, so close to what he went through. So I was really, I was really happy that uh, our imagination uh, sometimes has uh, the power to approximate an experience which we don't have. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, uh, about fiction, I, I love one statement that Eel Doctor of, uh, which is uh, uh, that uh, a novelist is a person who can live in other people's skins. Mm. I think that. It sounds a little bit creepy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> I think it's even creepier if you never try to live in other people's skins, if you're very selfish and uh, only think of ourselves and how we see things. Uh, so this creepy thing is actually our liberation, that we sometimes can abandon our own uh, own ego and our own skins and imagine other, other people's skins and what they go through and uh, how it is. Well, we still somehow do it through our own skins, of course, but uh, we're expanding the horizons and uh, we're reaching out to understand other people that way. And uh, I think uh, that's our best chance, you know, across the ethnicities, the religious lines and all that, to, to go into some other people's experience and uh, and familiarize it to us. Maybe it can be very alien to, to us, uh, in terms of age, gender, geography, politics, uh, countries, but uh, uh, if we imagine it's it's in us, it's us. Uh, well, then we can communicate. Um, uh, that's what journalism cannot give you. Uh, in journalism, you always stay outside, and you can't uh, imagine all these things because you know, it's 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 no longer non-fiction. So, and in fiction, you can imagine, and very often you miss, very often you're not uh, correct, but sometimes you're correct, and uh, it's good to aim for that, uh, to understand. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of spirituality in your writing and um, how it's expressed through your fiction? Well, you see... Uh, said so I used to be uh, extremely religious uh, in the traditional sense, uh, prayer and readings and so on. And uh, now I'm not, but uh, I, I do still have the same uh, same kind of leap of faith. Uh, uh, to, when I write a story, to believe that the story makes sense, so that uh, the characters are believable, that the characters are real. And, uh, you know, very often I can't do it. Sometimes I have a good idea for a story, and I just don't believe uh, the words I put on page uh, on the page. And uh, I think that uh, moment of faith that you just have to believe that the words have the power to invoke. Uh, uh, it's um, it's it's very it's very uh, essentially um, how to put it uh, religious because you work out of nothing uh, and. Uh, you just have the words, and so in the beginning, was the word uh, is uh, is extremely true uh, in uh, in writing fiction. Uh, you just put that word down, and then you hope there will be another word. And uh, 
uh, sometimes you don't have much more to go by than that. And, uh, and, and, and frequently it's very scary. That's why there's writer's block. You know, uh, I don't, generally, I don't believe in the writer's block because obviously you can always keep a journal and this and that. But uh, there is a writer's block in a story. If you have a particular story and you don't have the faith, uh, very often you, you just walk away from the desk. It, it is scary not to have the faith. Uh, and at the same time, it's a, an amazing thing when uh, the words uh, generate other words and uh, suddenly you do have scenes and you're uh, forgetting about yourself as a writer and these, these characters become alive. Uh, uh, for me, you know, for me, it is the closest thing to to what I was praying for when I was a kid. Uh, suddenly, uh, the word uh, is... Uh, Effective and it's it's creative and uh, it's uh, salvific. It saves me from uh, from my own uh, lack of understanding. So, can you tell um, pretty early on when you've written something that's that's really good that's going to pan out, or does it take you a while to realize um, sometimes what you're grappling with? You know, it's varied. Sometimes. Uh, the euphoria of uh, writing uh, is uh, right there. And other times I'm still very skeptical of writing, but uh, a few days later when I come back to the page, I say, well, this is actually set up pretty well and I can work with it. Uh, so it's not even a, a matter of um, immediate enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm. And uh, I'd say it's all, it's in the long run, it is um, a matter of... Uh, Patience and endurance, and uh, we're not giving up. Uh, it, uh, it it does uh, boil down to to the basics of just um, perseverance and faithfulness to to the project. Mm-hmm. Yes. What What are some other things that you might advise? beginning writers. Um, you know, I have to mention really quickly, I really love your writing textbooks, and I actually just ordered one of them for my students for next semester for an advanced creative writing class. And um, I just, I feel like your books, a lot of writing books have so many lists of things that you can't do and rules that shouldn't be broken. But I feel like your books are really encouraging. They're academic, but they're encouraging. They're inspiring. Um so obviously, you know, you would inspire people to not give up and that sort of thing. But what are some other things that as a writing teacher and a writer of books about writing that you would really uh, advise a beginning writer? Oh. Well, um, very simply, uh, to uh, do uh, all sorts of writing. Uh, if, you, if you want to be a fiction writer, uh, to write uh, poetry, plays, uh uh, journals, uh, interviews, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's all writing and it all uh, actually falls into place. Uh, for example, if you, if you write plays as a novelist, uh, well, there's so many things in which you, you need to be really um, comfortable in dialogue, you know? So, uh, yeah. and uh, description. You need to put words in amazing ways uh, sometimes for special effects. Nobody's going to play a symphony for you to, to jazz up some tension. So you've got to create an ominous <laughs> effect by word combinations. And uh, that's where poetic uh, practice is very helpful. And uh, so uh, 
my advice is that uh, ne never to get stuck. If you're stuck in one genre, write in another one, and eventually you'll come back to whatever your project is. Uh, uh, it's like a, you know, body in sports. If you if you if you want to be a good uh, basketball player, maybe you need to bicycle, uh, swim, uh, box, uh, jump. Uh, it's not all about just uh, shooting the ball. You need to build a body, build a ground to do it. And uh, same with fiction. It's uh, it's a kind of um, an all-round uh, lifestyle. It's not just that. Is that is really great advice. <laughs> That's really, really wonderful advice. So, uh, do you write poetry then? I used to write a lot of it, and, um, and now I sneak it into my fiction. Uh, sometimes I, I I know that I'm trying to do a poem in a sentence or two. I, I pause it, and I, I I know it's a different genre. I don't uh, do it outside of it, but uh, I I I know that uh, I have to switch uh, gears very frequently. Yes, yes, and much of your um, fiction is actually very lyrical. So, um, I, we're about to run out of time, so um, I just wanted to see before we close if you have any upcoming um, events or publications or anything that you would like to announce. Well, I have a book uh, coming out uh, in February, and it's, uh, the title is Shopping for a Better Country. Uh, it's a collection of essays. It's Zank Books, B Z A M C, uh, from Michigan. Uh, and uh, uh, the initial title of that was uh, uh, The Art of Coughing, because there were some uh, essays about um, TB, chronic bronchitis. But uh, most of it is actually travelogues and uh, changing countries coming from Croatia to the United States, now from the United States to Canada. and uh, so, uh, especially now that uh, the world is uh, so confused, uh, which is the good country? We always were so sure that the United States was the best country. In many ways, still is, but uh, we have good reasons for doubts, you know? So, yes. shop for a better yeah. country. Well, that sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for, for being here tonight. It was such a delight to talk to you and um, especially hear you read that wonderful story. <laughs> Sorry I got confused. I'm not an Apple person and uh, my my PC kind of died so I'm uh, on Apple and uh, when I was scrolling down it just wouldn't scroll down. So, <laughs> sorry for that. <laughs> well, I, I'm not a member of the Steve Jobs uh, sect, you know, so that I've been punished here. Right. You know, I wasn't sure what was going on. I thought, well, maybe he just meant to read part of the story, so I waited for a minute, and then you kept going. So <laughs> I'm glad uh, if you the whole press page down, it works only if you already clicked on that page, and uh, I didn't click on it. So yeah, yeah. Well, it, it was great. I'm glad we got to hear the whole thing. Anyhow, I'll be for the next time. But thanks a lot for the patience, for your patience with me, and uh, it's wonderful to talk with you. Yes, you too. Thank you so much. <laughs> good night. Yeah, good night. Have fun. Okay, well, I'd just like to thank those of you who are listening in this evening and those of you listening after the fact as well. Our next interview will be January 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Jason Schulman, founder of a Society of Souls Training and in Integrated Cabalistic Healing and author of the Instruction Manual for Receiving God.
We'd also like to let you know that the Ferret Journal has just revamped its beautiful website to an even more beautiful and efficient new website with new classes, writing, and membership opportunities. The site is also a great place for readers and listeners to post their own poetry since our editors feature one poem each day from those who post. As well, a year subscription to the Ferret Journal is just $19 and includes six issues, one print and five digital. For more information, please visit our website at www.teferritjournal.com. Thank you for being with us tonight. We hope you'll join us again next month.